So Acts chapter 14, if you've been with us in the book of Acts, we have come upon this church. It's the church at Antioch. And it's a very unique church. When the gospel hits the city there, it's the first time you have Jew and Gentile coming together. I call it the first Christian church. And there in Antioch on Sundays, the, the city would be watching people from all the different walled off quadrants of that city joining together in unity, praising God. African, Egyptian, Italian, Greek, barbarian, Jew. And so they looked at this crazy thing that happened every Sunday, people literally climbing the walls to come together. And they said, what do we call these people? We can't call them Jews or Gentiles. We can't call them barbarians or Greeks or Romans. So they coined a term for these people. It's in Antioch that believers were first called Christians. We'll call them Christians. What a great name. So they're called Christians there. And we saw that Barnabas was sent down there because the church was growing so big. And he says he saw the grace of God. How do you see God's grace? I think the Bible tells us it's when you see all kinds of people, all kinds of different people from different backgrounds and different brokenness, all kinds of people being changed. And he saw that happening there. And then in, last week in chapter 13, we saw the leadership of that church. Again, different continents, different backgrounds, different everything. And they're the ones God chooses to steer the church forward. And they're a courageous church. They take their lead pastor and their executive pastor and they send them off on a missions trip in chapter 13. And we'll look at this missions trip on Wednesday, but Paul and Barnabas end up walking 1,581 miles on this trip. That's crazy. Like I get upset because I had to walk from the street into church today. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> that's a long walk. But here's what I love. After they complete this missionary journey, we see the church at Antioch again. So look at chapter 14, verse 24. When they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained faithful. They remained no little time with the disciples. I love this church at Antioch. It changes the city. That city becomes known as the cradle of Christian theology. It transforms this city. And what we see in these little verses are I believe some key things that church is supposed to be. That my hope 
that Edgewater is, that it, help, it helps guide me when I think about this is what Edgewater is supposed to be. So I picked out four of them. I think these four define what good church is. We'll go over them. Number one, good church is home. It's home. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They walk 1,581 miles. And where do they come home to? The church at Antioch. We'll see in chapter 15, they go down to Jerusalem. And in verse 30, it says, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. They come home to Antioch again. Paul takes his second missionary journey, even a longer one. And in chapter 18, when that missionary journey is over, in verse 22, guess where he goes? Home to Antioch. That Paul said, this church is my home. It's where I head to. I like that. I think today, we don't have that as much as we used to. That now church is closer to a hotel. That we kind of go to a church for a while, and then when we don't like something or we're just kind of feeling angst, we move on to the next one. And we never truly unpack our bags. We never unpack who we are. We are not known by people or let people know us. We keep our baggage close. And then we just move down the road to a new church. And we bounce but never belong. I think that happens a lot today. And to me, it's a bummer. And I'm not, if you're new, trying to get you to make Edgewater your home. I realize that Edgewater's not the place for everybody, and I'm okay with that. I think Jesus has a bunch of different churches because we're different people, and we find certain places fit us better. That's awesome. No problem. But I think we should all have a home church. Why, Matt? I like to bounce. I'll give you some reasons why. First of all, it's a pushback on our culture that has become totally non-committal. Have you noticed that? We don't commit to things anymore. I'll give you one graph that I think shows this the best. If you can show this. This is marriage since 1990. Notice a trend? What's that saying? I don't wanna commit. I think we need to listen to the theologian, Beyonce, <laughs> who said to all the single ladies, if you like me, put a ring on it. I agree. <laughs> we don't commit anymore. The rates, in fact, that's for all the population. You look at the younger generation and it's even worse than this because we don't commit anymore. People now, when they're invited to something, they don't say yes or no. What do they say now? Maybe. Why? FOMO, fear of missing out. So we try to keep all of our options open just in case something better comes up and then we don't commit to something. But what they're finding is this, because especially the younger generation, because they're non-committal, they actually do less things because the boat sails and they didn't get on it. So the, what, what they're finding is they're a lot more active on social media, but they're less active actually socially because they're always fearing what the, something better might come up. So I'm not gonna commit to that. 
Committing just says, I'm gonna do what you do. Doesn't matter what other people are doing. I'm gonna do what you do and I'm committing to that. And it's brilliant. So you commit to a home church because you're pushing off against a culture that's really unhealthy. Number one. Number two, you commit because you get cared for. So the past week or so, I did a memorial service and visited some sick people. And then I visited a guy in the hospital. And he's a great brother, love him. Uh, This is what happened to him. He fell. And when he fell, he broke nine ribs and punctured a lung, right? He laid there in like a, a, a puddle of water in the shade for five and a half hours. He could not get up. When his wife got home at 5.30, she's like, where are you at, honey? I'm down here. This is what he asked for. Could I get a pillow and a blanket, please? (laughs) I was just crying. I'm like, dude, you're crazy. You're such a man. That's what men do, right? I'm not actually hurt. I didn't puncture my lung. I don't have nine broken ribs. All I need is a pillow and a blanket. Come out and check on me in the morning, see if I'm alive. That's so funny. So I'm sitting there, I'm talking with him and it's got that machine that's like plugged into his lung and it's sucking like out stuff. So every time he breathes, you just see this stuff kind of go. I'm like, I'm not eating lunch today, bro. I am so not hungry right now. And I said, hey, can I do anything for you? He said, no way. I'm plugged into a community group. They have helped us and blessed us so much. You would not believe it. Praying for us, bring meals over for us. We are taken care of. See, when you commit, other people commit and you're taken care of. That's why. You gotta have home. Number three, you share the gospel by being committed. You share the gospel. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples. You know what it is? By your bumper stickers. (laughs) By your fat study Bible by the way that you tell people they're going to hell. Nope. By your love, one for another, especially when it's hard. See, those that cross their arms at Christianity, they're waiting to see what happens when this gets hard. What happens when love is inconvenient? Liking does things when it's convenient. Love moves when it's inconvenient. Love moves in when the world walks out. That's how people know. That's why you belong. And then lastly, because it's good for you. It will help you. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 18, Moses is retelling the story of how the children of Israel had wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. And he said, you guys remember what happened to us. When the the, the people that straggled when we'd walk, They got disconnected from the body. How the Amalekites would come and destroy them. You remember how that happened. I think that's a telling thing that happens in the church. When a person gets disconnected from the body, maybe before before they were doing really well, they're connected, but then they start just kind of disconnecting themselves. It's like the enemy just pounces on them and takes them out. And in 12 years, I've watched this happen over and over and over again. That's why. Maybe the best analogy came from uh, a fire I made with, with my family many years ago. Elijah was four, so it was six years ago. And we're 
roasting marshmallows and making some s'mores. And the night was over, so I was taking the coals with a stick and I was moving the coals apart because it makes the fire go out. Well, my son, Elijah, he was my first son. So I was learning about boy at that time. He comes running over. He's like, what are you doing to the fire? I want to do that. I want to stick. I want to play with the fire. Like there's something in boy and fire, right? Like if you have a boy in your home and your house never burns down, you need to thank the grace of God because that's what prevented it, okay? And he's like, dad, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, well, son, if you move the coals apart, they all go out. But when they're together, man, they burn too hot. I thought that's the Christian walk, isn't it? You take me and pull me out of community and people and you put me alone, I will slowly and surely go out. But you take me and you put me around a bunch of red hot believers that are engaged and loving Jesus and passionate. Guess what happens to me? I get engaged and passionate and red hot as well. That's why. Paul knew all this. So he made Antioch his home church. It's home for me. I'm gonna belong there. I'm not saying it should be Edgewater. If it's not, no problem. Find a church that you can connect to and contribute to. That's when you know it's a home church. It's both of those ingredients. So here, number one, we see churches to be home. Number one. Number two, church is to be where you're heard. Look what he does when he gets home. Verse 7 27. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas get home. The church is excited. They want to hear from them. They share testimonies. They're like, wow, you planted church here. You got the governor of Cyprus saved. You planted a church there. That bad thing happened. Oh, wow. They listened. Church was a place where their voice was heard. This text right here makes me sad though. Because sociologists have found once a group of people grows above 150, the normal ways that you communicate all break down. Like you can about know 150 people total, kind of know about them and be able to listen to them. And, but after 150, it's like the thing just, it just crumbles under its own weight. It can't sustain it anymore. It's too big. So when a church gets bigger than 150, the normal kind of relationship stuff that used to rule and do well, it crumbles. So then certain voices get heard and certain voices don't get heard and it just gets strange. And so it saddens me. And you can ask the elders. I've been saying, how do we become a church? How do we grow smaller? How do we have an ability for people's voices to be heard? How do we do that well? I've suggested maybe once a month we have an open elders meeting where anybody can come to it. And you can come with thoughts and discussions or you can just listen on what we do. Maybe that's an idea. I've had other ideas that the elders are like, I don't know if that would work. That's crazy. I'm like, well, we gotta do something. Somehow this has to be happening here. And here's why it's so important to me, I think. Here's what I found. I do marriage counseling from time to time. When it comes to husbands, it seems like every husband during the course of our talk, I will quote to them James 1.19. 
when it applies to their marriage, that verse simply says this, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And almost always I tell husbands, there, something unraveled in your marriage, and it seems to me that it goes back to this right here, being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And I almost always tell them this, listen, I do premarital counseling before people get married. And when I ask premarital couples, I always ask them this question, why him, why her? Of the three billion people you could have chosen, why him, why her? And almost inevitably, the woman will say this, he is the first man that truly understands me. And I always snicker. I'm like, really? I'm like, buddy, do you understand her? Uh-uh, no. No, 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 not, not at all, in fact. <laughs> it's like saying, I understand the theory of rel- relativity. I can shake my head, but no. What happened that gave that woman the thought he understands me? What did the guy do? Listen, that was it. He listened, nodded his head. Mm, oh, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, okay. Let's go get some lunch. That's all he did. But opening that up and listening to your wife goes just, it's as big as it gets. It's huge. So I tell husbands, listen, James 1.19 works like this. Be quick to listen means when your wife's lips are moving, yours are not. That's step one. You just, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. When she's finished talking, Here's what you do that shows you are listening. You say, here's what I think you just said. And you summarize what your wife just said. Because we don't always listen correctly. Do you know that? All of us have a filter and the filter gets thicker and bigger the longer you've been married. So everything that your wife is saying now runs through a filter of all these other conversations you had. So what she said may not be actually what you heard. So when you say, I think you said this, it gives your wife an opportunity to say, what? I did not say that. This is what I said. If you'll do that, what you find is you're slow to wrath. It's the natural thing. And so for me, when I think about church, church is compared to a marriage Like if people feel like I don't have a voice there, no one listens to me. I think you get the divorce papers out. I don't want that. I want this to be a place where, where like Paul is able to do in a big church, verse 27 happens. So how do we do that? So two months ago, we did a survey, which is a way to kind of, hey, what's happening? Let's listen well. And we are taking that information and making changes here based on feedback. Well, okay, we heard. We try to listen well. So I think that's one way. We do testimony videos. Doing testimony videos comes from this verse right here. I want to do them because I read this and I said, how do you do this at four services in multiple locations? We'll make a video and we can show it that way. So that's one way. Um, Community groups. I think community groups is a way that your voice can be heard, no doubt. But I continue to say, how do we do this better? How do we do this better? And maybe it's a real angst in my soul because for the eight o'clock and the nine o'clock and the 10 o'clock, I'm gone after service. 
So I don't hear anything from a really massive part of the church. I hear here and I love that. I love talking with you guys and hanging out and praying and listening. It's great. But for a massive part of the church, I'm just gone. So maybe having a building will help that. And I've thought about doing Q&As maybe once a month or maybe after every single, every, every, every Sunday. It's just, hey, we have a half an hour. If you have some questions, uh, we'll be over here and we'll, just, we'll take questions and answers. Maybe about the message, theology, philosophy, methods. What are we doing? Just to open up a place where we can listen well, where you can be heard. If you have ideas on how to do this better, I'm all ears. I'm all ears. I would love to hear how to do this better because I think it's that vital of something. Paul goes home and he's heard. It's a place you call home and your voice is heard. Number three, church is a hospital. If you back up just a few verses to verse 19, it says this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I don't know what happens when you get stoned, but I bet you it's nine broken ribs and a punctured lung. Brutal. This is before medication and hospitals. Brutal. Maybe the trip Paul had planned was actually more than 1,581 miles and it was cut short because Paul comes home after this because church to him was a hospital. I gotta go there and heal up. I think this is a good picture of what church is to be for you and me. We go out on Monday morning and sometimes the world busts us up. Have you noticed that? It is constantly telling us this is life bombarding us with images and ideas. Life is getting more for you. Life is about selfishness. Life is about fulfilling that lust or taking this drugs. That's what life is about. So we're bombarded with these things that start to break us down. Or people that we're trying to help and minister to gossip about us, mistreat us, speak lies about us, and it hurts. Or we go out and we do our own stupid things that break us up. And so we're supposed to come in this gathering in this community and we're supposed to come in here and we're supposed to get healed up. So Jesus says this, it's Matthew 9, 12. He says this, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And he's talking to a group of people that were mad at him about who he was hanging out with. He says, you guys need to learn mercy. I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And then in Luke 4, he says something very similar. He says, God's spirit is upon me. He's quoting Isaiah 61. To preach the good news, to give sight to the blind, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captivities free. I've come as a doctor on a mission. The church is supposed to represent Jesus as a place, as a hospital for sick people. And if you've been at Edgewater, you know this is a theme. I will repeat this about one time a year because I fear if you stop being a hospital for sick people, the only other option for church then is to become a country club for pretty people. And then we worry about dress codes and rules and certain kinds of behavior because that's what country clubs do. But I was in a hospital and you know what I noticed about a hospital? They don't care about the clothing you wear. In fact, they dress everybody in the same goofy robe 
right? So you're like this, hey, how are you? Um, like maybe that's what, what we should do at the doorway. Just give everybody a goofy robe. This, you gotta put this on, man. Just take away all that idea of like, yeah, I'm cooler than you, or you know, you're not dressed, just take that away. In a hospital, they don't care about like what you did. They just wanna know what you did, right? You're here because something bad happened. Maybe you did it, maybe it happened to you, right? You can be really honest in a hospital. No one sits on the operating table after being run over by a semi and says, you know, doc, I'm actually okay. If you just hand me my arm, I'm gonna go home now. You can be really honest about, yeah, I was a moron, I did this, but, but you're there to get help. So you can be honest and truthful. That's what I think hospitals are supposed to be. To me, it's no question at all that church is to be a hospital. The only question is this, are we a good hospital? Are we a good hospital? Ever been to a bad hospital? Right, you go in the emergency room and they're having a sale on coffins. Someone's playing taps in the corner, like, huh, I think I should leave. <laughs> For medicine, they offer you a Dr. Pepper. It's a doctor, come on. That's a bad hospital. What's a good hospital look like? It's gotta be clean. If you go to the hospital and you get sicker, that's a problem. I think church needs to be a place where we care about being holy, which is God's way of saying being clean. Like, oh yeah, no doubt, there's sin and all that, kind of, but we should have this idea and this desire, I want to be holy as my heavenly father is, that we should be a place where holiness matters. We say we want to be clean. Hospitals don't get annoyed with sick people because that's what they exist for. Do we get annoyed with sick people? Like, what are they doing here? Hmm. I can always tell when I'm annoyed at the sick person because I'll have an attitude like this. How could you? Hospitals don't do that, do they? They're more disgusted with the disease than, than annoyed by the sick person. That, to me, that's the right attitude. It's not how could you, but what happened to you? Tell me what happened to you. Are we annoyed with sick people? I pray that we have a compassion on people that have been sick and been thrown down and beat up by this world. I pray we have that compassion. But I noticed when I was at the hospital, an ambulance showed up. When the ambulance showed up, it was like a beehive happened, like whoa, all this activity. The doctor and nurse did not say, oh, you know what? Actually, um, I'm headed to lunch right now. I'm sorry, if you could just have a Dr. Pepper, I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> no, they instantly engaged. Here's a sick person, we exist for them to help them. Yes, it's inconvenient. And yes, my lunch was supposed to be now. It's not now because there's a sick person that just showed up. I like that. Am I willing to be inconvenienced by somebody who's sick and hurt? Or, nah, it doesn't actually fit my schedule. That's convicting to me. Are we a good hospital? I hope we are. What I noticed this too, there was activity. I did it, I did it. A hospital visit, and I went to a mortuary and they're radically different, right? The ER room was just bustling with activity. The mortuary, not so much, very different. And in my mind, I thought, I think if you stop being in an ER room, then what there'll be is there'll be this slow slide toward being a mortuary. We're just waiting to die, that's it. 
I hope we're active. I've been on the mission field a bunch. You're in Vanuatu, five times to India, uh, six months down in Mexico, just a bunch of missionary activity. And what I noticed in church on the mission field, it's like this. They talk about what they do. Man, we went and shared in this village. We saw this person get saved. We saw a miracle happen. We got the snot kicked out of us. Don't go to that village, it's really bad. It's talk, they're talking about what they do, what they're doing. In America, we don't so much. We talk about what we know. Did you hear this guy? I listened to this sermon. I read this book. And both are good. But I think it's really important to be a church that acts, like the book of Acts. It's not the book of knowing. It's the book of activity. They did stuff. But in America, it's like we have a shyness about asking anyone what, what, what they're actually doing with their faith. Like, how are you walking your faith out? It's like, we don't wanna ask those questions. And sometimes I don't think we even wanna ask how they're doing. Like in the ER room, the first question is, hey, how are you doing and what did you do? Those are the first questions. But I think sometimes we don't wanna ask those questions because people might actually tell us how they're doing. Well, my marriage is in shambles. My daughter's sleeping with her boyfriend. I'm depressed and I'm hooked on prescription drugs. It's very hard at that point to be like, oh, you know what? Look at the time, I gotta go. See you next Sunday. Right, you might have to be inconvenienced by what you hear. So it's almost easier not even ask the question. But then we stop being the hospital. That's what we stop being. My prayer is that Edgewater is a place where our great physician is able to work well, that we're good physician's assistants, that we're PAs, and we're helping our great physician heal people, set people free, that that's why we're here. That's why we exist. We exist for that. So a good church, home, people are heard, it's a hospital. Then lastly, it's halftime. Notice, Paul comes back, and then if you skip forward to chapter 15, verse 36, notice what it says. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where they proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. He came home, he healed up, he was heard, and then he headed out. It was halftime. I think what we do right here, corporate worship, I call it, is like halftime in a football game. It's you come together, you're in a locker room, you've been out on the field, out on the game, you get some rest, you get some refreshment, you hear maybe a good strategy for the opposing team, how to go out there and play a little bit better, and then you go back out. And halftime is important, it matters. Remember the Super Bowl 2017, a year ago? Patriots Atlanta. Patriots were down by 25 points. And after halftime, it just like the game reversed and they came back and they won it. How? Maybe it was a good new strategy by Belichick. Maybe they let the air out of the balls. I don't know. One of those two. <laughs> it matters. But when the halftime was over, they got back out and they played the game. 
To me, that's what's really important. I think what can happen is we can start to elevate halftime. And halftime becomes everything. We just always want to be in halftime because we like halftime. And the people are nice and it's cozy. And out there, man, it's harder. Out there, it's harder. So I want to stay in here. It's been my fear maybe for 12 years. It's maybe why I've been very reluctant about building a building because I want to make sure, no, it's not about a building. It's important. Halftime is important. Yes, totally. But the game is played out there. So a bunch of years ago, before we ever built our, built our office, I had this idea. I put it to the pastor and I said, let's just get rid of, let's have no office, nothing. Just no office, period. That we'll be meeting people out in life, wherever they're at. So we'll go to Dutch Bros for the hip crew and we'll go to Rogue Roasters for the hippies and just meet them there. Right? I had um, breakfast with a guy. He's 20 years old or so. And it was at 6.30 at Elmer's. So we're there and we're studying our Bibles and we're reading them and our waitress comes by. And she says, what are you guys doing? I said, reading our Bibles. She's like, oh, wow. I didn't think young people could even read. I was like, oh, you're funny. And we keep going on and talking. She's bantered a little bit. And then when we were ready to leave, she said, hey, thank you guys. You have given me great hope for this next generation. Why? Because that's where the game's played. If we're all here together, and it's good and we need that, we need halftime, but it's so that we go back out and we play the game where it's supposed to be played in parks and neighborhoods and jobs with families in the parking lot, shopping. That's where it's played. That's the game. If we get too much of, of, it's come and see so you can go and tell. That's the broad message of the book of, to me, the whole book of Acts. Come and see, learn this stuff, why? So you can go and tell the good news. It's gotta be both of those things. If you get too much come and see, then what happens is we don't wanna go and tell them anymore. If you don't go and tell, you don't have anything to go and tell people about. It's gotta be both, doing and knowing. And it's brilliant and powerful. And there's a verse that haunts me as a Christian. It's Galatians 5, 7. And it says this. You did run well. Who has hindered you? I never want that said about me. Matt, you used to run well. You used to play the game really good. What hindered you? What stopped you? I never want that heard said about Edgewater Christian Fellowship. Hey, you guys used to be effective and used to be doing things, but, but what hindered you? It haunts me. Because right now, without a building, and we're, we're getting a building, no doubt about it. And I will always have this thing in me, this angst about, hey, it's halftime. Let's not elevate this thing. Let's let it be what it's supposed to be. And it's powerful and good, but we're here to go back out and tell the good news in a city that's littered with family problems and marriage problems and kids that are being neglected and abused and drugs. Let's go back out there because that's where the message needs to go. So I'll always have this in me. But right now we're doing really good because people are getting it. Like one of my favorite stories is this. This guy named Phil came in and introduced himself to me. And he said, I've been coming here about 30 days. I want to say hello to you. He said, I never imagined I would ever step foot in a church. I'm like, okay, well, what brought you here? He said, I was going to this doctor. 
And I was suffering from real depression, like bad, bad, bad thoughts. And so we're working through stuff and trying all kinds of stuff and all this things. And I was just going deeper and deeper and deeper, having bad thoughts. And so finally the doctor said, okay, I got another prescription for you. Pulled out his pad, wrote it, handed it to Phil. On that prescription, it said, Sundays and Wednesdays, go to Edgewater Christian Fellowship. Signed the doctor. Because that's why I'm here. So we started talking. I'd see him more and more and more. And after a while, he's like, I wanna get baptized. I'm like, awesome, man. So I gotta baptize him. His son then, he had an adult, young adult son who was living with him, was like, something's happened to my dad. I wanna be baptized too. So I was able to baptize the son. And then we actually prayed for them and they actually moved out to Eastern Oregon. I love that. That's a doctor playing the game in the field of life. Yes, he's got all these tools and one of them happens to be, how about this? Try this. I love that. I was talking with Dave and Catherine Abdener recently. And Catherine has been like, I I asked her about questions on on babies because she's been three decades in our community. And she has watched what's happened with drug babies. Like she goes, it was rare to have a drug baby when I first came here. Now it's like almost every day. And it just breaks her heart. She just starts crying. And so she's been trying to figure out what do you do about this? So she went to this this conference on it. And what she found out was this, that a, a, a drug baby, when they're born, let's say they're born addicted to an opioid. You then have to give that baby morphine for sometimes 10 days, 20 days to slowly wean that baby off of morphine. It's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to do that to a baby. It breaks her heart. Well, she goes to this conference and what she finds out is this. If you'll hold a drug baby, if you'll just hold the drug baby and walk around with him, the amount of drugs are cut down to one fifth and the stay in the NICU is cut down by two thirds because babies don't belong in plastic bubbles. They need to be held. So now they're saying, we got this intern in and we're talking with her about starting a program where we get people in the body of Christ just saying, man, we will come down there and for two hours, we'll hold a baby. That's it. And pray over that baby. Pray, Jesus, grab a hold of this baby. And no matter what's happened in its infancy, in, its, in the womb, Jesus, you, you heal him. You heal her. You change this baby's destinies. Like that, to me, that's, I'm like, that's playing the game where it, where it belongs. That's doing it right. I can go on and on and on. Phil and Tina Marshall, taking, taking in kids into their home. Right? The Bowmans, taking them to uh, really precious kids to us. The Savage Boys. I just say, oh, thank you. The Mortimer's with foster care. It just, it goes on and on and on and on. I can go on and on. I don't know. Jordan Daniels with these cards she makes and she sends them to trafficked girls around the world. Just, I, I love that. That's where the game's played, right? I don't wanna be hindered in that. I think that Grant's Pass is poised to be changed. I know Grant's Pass is better already because of us, because of the believers in Grant. I can't imagine what Grant's Pass would be without the body of Christ. And I just think it's gonna be better. And the Bible says this to us. It's a promise. It's Galatians 6, verse nine. It says, do not grow weary in well-doing for you shall receive a harvest if you faint not. Don't give up. Don't give up. 
This is halftime. We're now being sent back out into homes and jobs and families. We're to bloom where God has planted us right now, planting good seeds of Jesus, watering those seeds and expecting a harvest. So I'm gonna ask you when you come up and you take the elements, the body and the blood, I'm gonna ask you to do this, to be reminded that Jesus made a home for you. Let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you shall be hereafter. You have a home. You're heard. Jesus says, if you ask in my name, it's done. I hear you. You've had the great physician heal you. You know that he's our halftime. He's the one that comes and refreshes us and engages us and then sends us out as his missionaries. And so I want you to take the cup and take the body and say, Jesus, send me out today. Use me as a missionary wherever I'm at. Empower me to do that work. Help me to play well on the field that I'm supposed to play on. And he'll do that. So Jesus, this day, I pray that each one of us in this room would have a body of believers that we can call home where our hearts can dwell in safety. I pray that each one of us would have a body of believers that hear us, know us. I pray that we, as a body, would then be a great hospital for you, our great physician, to work in, that we'd be able physician assistants. I pray that this day we'd be each being sent out to play the game where it actually matters on the field of life, which needs each one of us. And may we see Grant's past transformed, Lord. May we claim this city as yours. May we see your kingdom come and your will being done in Grant's pass as in heaven. We pray this in your name, amen.